Almighty Father, you are our creator and deliverer. You are making us holy and leading us on our way. This morning, you are reminding us of the things that are most important. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for assembling us here this morning to hear your word. Your mercy and kindness brings us here again, and it reminds us of who you are and who we are in relationship to you. We confess that our ears are dull to hear the truths from your word. We confess that our hearts are seldom able to experience the true fear of God that your word ought to produce. We confess that our obedience is often half-hearted and occasional instead of vibrant, careful, and consistent. Lord, we confess that our children are quick to follow after the sins of our own hearts. They look and they discern and they understand the things that we fear and the things that we love, and they go after those things. Lord, calls us to be careful to observe and obey your commandments for our good and for your glory. Would you stir this in our hearts this morning? Calls our children to hope in you, to trust in the cross of Christ, and to love the saints that you've placed around them. We ask these things this morning of you because we cannot do them for ourselves or for our children. So do this, Father, for your name's sake and for your renown for generations to come. It is in these things we ask. Amen. Amen. Moses is getting ready to pass off the scene in Deuteronomy 31. He's leaving this rebellious and stubborn people that in the wilderness under the leadership of Joshua. He's handing the leadership over to them. He's trying to shore up these things. If you notice, this is the end of the book of Deuteronomy. There's only a few more chapters. And then Moses going off the scene. Joshua is going to come onto the scene and lead the people into the promised land. Moses is giving them the things that they need to make sure that they fix in their minds for what would be a prosperous future for them. He knows their hearts. He knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their tendencies. But more than that, Moses knows that he is their mediator. He's the one who has been speaking to them on behalf of God, and he's calling them to look to their Messiah, to the one who will save them. And he's encouraging Joshua. We see this even in verse 7 as Alex read for us just a minute ago. He's calling them. He's saying, Moses summoned Joshua. That's a strong word. And said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. Why? For you shall go with this people into the land Uh, that the Lord has sworn to his fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. And they were indeed going into this particular promised land that the Lord had promised to them, and they had a particular promise to be in that land. We too, however, have been told that we are to move forward. We're to look into the future. We're to consider how we are to be faithful. And the Lord wants us to understand that the future that we have, the world that we're in, the city and the nation that we're a part of, it too will be hostile to our faith. And so we're to make sure that our lives and the lives of our children are fortified so that we can be faithful. Now here's the danger I always feel as a pastor. I do not want us to be sectarian 
What I mean by that is I do not want us to, uh, to act or live as if we're the only church that is getting everything right. We are not. That's why we pray for other churches. That's why we're always um, encouraging um, our congregation and you to be praying for other churches. We're not sectarian. However, you will be called sectarian if you believe that the gospel is the only thing that will save. And every church that rightly and faithfully preaches the gospel is right. And everyone that does not will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, but will enter into hell for eternity. And those are some high stakes. And we need to be careful. I, nor, nor do I want us to fall into the pattern of our world today. And that is not sectarianism, but instead pluralism. Meaning that everybody's generally got a decent idea of how they need to love Jesus. And as long as everybody kind of generally loves the Jesus they've made up in their own mind and they think it's the best Jesus that they can follow, then everybody's going to be okay at the end. That's pluralism. And that is the philosophy of the day. And that's going to leave many people, leave many people astray. So we need to be faithful and careful to lift up Christ and the gospel and know that this world that's in front of us will not thwart his plan. And yet, we're called this morning to look at what's around us. We're called to, as our, past, as our passage says this morning in verse 12, to assemble the people, men and women, little ones, and those who are sojourners, all of those were gathered here and we're to, we're to ask the question, what is it that the Lord wants us to do as we look into the world that's ahead of us and the future that's before us? I want us to notice our text this morning, verses 12 and 13, and I want to ask two questions of these two verses. Question one, why do we assemble? Why do we assemble? That's question one, and that's in verse 12. Question two is, why do we assemble with our children? Question two, why do we assemble with our children? And this, of course, is in verse 13. Question one, why do we assemble? Question two, why do we assemble with our children? Look with me at verse 12, if you will. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. We see here very clearly and very straightforwardly that this is actually a command given to them by God. They're to assemble, they're to gather together. And this is not to be overlooked or ignored. It's easy to kind of move on and see what else is in the passage and forget that the the verse here begins with an imperative, a command, a summons for us to gather together and be intentional and faithful to do this very important first act that's in our passage this morning. We find that throughout Scripture, throughout the history of humanity, God's people, God's people have always been defined and shaped by this activity, by assembling and gathering together. God's people were defined by this assembly. They were called the assembly. They were called to gather together. The very essence of an assembly is God's people gathering together. The word itself in the Hebrew and in the Greek means to gather, to to assemble together, to bring God's people together. The first English Bible, English translation, in fact, the first English translations 
translated this word or these words for both in the Hebrew to gather or to assemble and then ecclesia, which is the word for um, to gather or to assemble. The first English translations actually translated this word, this term, congregation. It was only later, the, the, it was only later the, the Bible that came over with the Mayflower, which was the Geneva Bible, the G- Geneva translation. This was the first translation that came over with us, to, to, to us here in, in the U.S. It was the first English translation that translated the word congregation, the, the ecclesia, the Greek word. The, it was translated congregation up to that point. It was the first translation that translated the word church. And there we have this word, this word church, that means to congregate, to gather, to assemble. By very definition, it defines us for who we are. This is not uncommon, is it? We know that there were people who were defining themselves by the gatherings that they were participating in in L.A. or in Chicago, right? All over the world, this is a common occurrence. People gather to identify themselves with a particular entity or idea or ideology. We, as God's people throughout history, have been called to gather as his people. This is not be overlooked or, uh, or assumed. It is the very definition of who we are. It should be the very, 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 very valuable part of every day of our life. But this is not merely implied from this term. We find all over the Old Testament and the New Testament that God's people were commanded to assemble or to gather, to meet together. In Deuteronomy 31.12, it says, Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, even the sojourners that were within their towns. The New Testament command we've often quoted before in Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. I hope you can see how easy it is for us to assume that this is a, a kind of a, a, an aside issue. No, it's not. In fact, so many want to say that gathering is, is, is good, it's probably the best thing to do, but my private devotions is where I'm really hearing from the Lord. Or maybe my, my family worship or my family discipleship is where, is where they, they, really the Lord wants to speak to me. Or we can see that so many have turned to actually showing up on a computer screen and watching a service and think that's enough. Do you see how quickly we're going to take this very important command that the Lord has given to us and diminish it and diminish it and diminish it to the fact that we're, we're nowhere even near what God has called us to be and how God's called us to be faithful? One of the primary rebukes, one of the primary rebukes in the major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, one of the primary rebukes to the pro- that the prophets are giving to the leaders of God's people in the Old Testament is that they are not gathering God's people. Did you know that? Over and over again, the prophets are telling the God's leaders, you're, you're missing the mark. You're not being the leaders that God has called you to be. Why? Because you are not gathering God's people, but instead you're scattering them. Jeremiah 23 is an example of this. Jeremiah 23 verse 1 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter. You hear that? Who scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. And this is important. We need to understand this, that throughout the scriptures, when the Lord gathers his people, it's a blessing to them. When God's people are scattered, it's a curse to them. It's a consequence of their sin. 
Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah continues. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 2, it goes on and says, Behold, God says, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. Their evil deeds is that they're scattering God's people, these shepherds of God's people. I will attend to you, the Lord says, for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. The Lord says, you may scatter, but my intention is to gather them up and to bring them together. Now, a very practical application of this is something that many of you may or may not have noticed, and that is that we as elders here at Sovereign Grace... We keep attendance on Sunday morning. We know who's here and who is not here. We do our very best to discern um, that attendance, and it's more and more difficult the larger we get. But we're committed to that, not because we're just simply trying to report our numbers. We don't report them to anybody. It is because we've been given a charge, and we read passages like this, and we know that God is holding us accountable for you. And one of the best thermometers for where you are spiritually is whether you're regularly under the preaching of God's word and with God's people. Your gathering on Lord's Day, your assembling on Lord's Day, is one of the best ways for you to continue in the faith and to grow. It is, it is the way that the Lord has said, the primary way that the Lord has said, that you will grow. And so we're very careful as elders to make sure we know who is, who is here and who isn't and how we might be able to follow up with those who may be falling aside for, for different reasons. Well, if we are to be known as a people who gather, congregate, or assemble, what makes us any different than a local club, civic organization, or a soccer team that may be getting together? The Lord calls us to assemble. But what makes us unique? What makes us unique is that God has called us together for a reason. Notice with me in our passage. Assemble the people. Men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns. That, here it is, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Where else, where else will you find that? Where else do you go to get that? What other entity in all of humanity is, is designed to do this? There is not a parachurch organization that is supposed to be doing this. There's not other entities or agencies or small groups or, or other things. Well-intended, maybe, but nonetheless, there's only one that the Lord has called to do this very thing, and that is that, they may, that we may hear from God himself and learn how to fear him. It is the church, and it is when the church is gathered on Lord's Day to hear from their God. The first reason we see in our text for God's people assembling is that they may hear Hearing the words from God is, is the, I'm using the article here, is the primary reason for our assembly. The idea of God's people assembling to hear is not, just, is not just here in our text, but it's also throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's important for us to understand that when in our day, when quote-unquote worship services are being assembled and gathered and imaginations and, and all kinds of wonderful ideas of how that might work, these, these worship services, if you notice, you can take no copy of God's word to a lot of those worship services and you will not be missing anything at all. Because they've, they've rejected the word of God. They turned it into a show or an experience, something for them to see or something for you to feel. 
Those are the two primary categories of our day today, isn't it? I want to see something that's going to wow me and experience, or I want to feel something and have some, some, some feeling when I leave. That's the judge or the evaluation for so many worship services, quote-unquote. But remember this, as far back as far back as Genesis 3, that's as early as we can get in our Bible, apart from two chapters, Adam and Eve had the privilege of being able to listen to God speak to them as they walked in the garden in the cool of the day and to listen to God and to do His Word, to do what the Lord was telling them to do, to live according to what the Lord had said to them to do. And I want you to notice as I read Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, what happens with Eve. In her rebellion, I want you to notice how she rebels. I want you to notice this. How does Eve rebel? She and, and Adam have been able to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and hear the Lord speaking to them and communing with them. How does Eve rebel? Listen, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So, when the woman saw, she began allowing her devotion and her fear and her love to be driven by her eyes and not her ears. Okay, listen. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Do you hear that? It was a delight to her eyes. It was beautiful to her eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Oh, it's going to make me, it's going to make me wise and intelligent and articulate. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You see, when we, begin, when we begin allowing our hearts to be drawn to what we see and then worshiping that which we see, we're always in, bad, we're always in a bad place. We are to be people who are driven by and worship a God who we listen to, who we hear, not one that we see. Think about it. Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, getting ready to come down the mountain, and the Lord says, you need to go down there, there's problems. What are the people of God doing? They're creating for themselves a golden calf that they can see. And they set it up. And they said that they set it up and they played around it. Almost like that kind of foolish idolatry insists that we entertain ourselves. Could it be that our hearts today are just as prone to look at something and worship it? To, to go after that which we can play and entertain ourselves with? I think so. I think it's all too telling. In the New Testament, Paul himself asserts the absolute necessity of hearing, of hearing, so that we can do something very important. And let's be very clear here. There is, there is only one way that we can come to faith. The Lord has given means for us growing and being strengthened and to come to faith. The way we come to faith, we hear here in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then... Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They won't be able to call on him. They will not be able to believe in him if they have not heard of him. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This foolishness of preaching is what the Lord says he will use. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
Isaiah said back in his day, Lord, who has believed? Listen, what he has heard from us. We're to be listening. We're to be hearing God's word. And then finally, Romans 10, 17 gives us this declaration. Listen carefully. Listen, moms and dads. Listen, boys and girls. Listen, men and women. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that that phrase there, word of Christ, speaks of the declaration, the preaching of Christ from his word. This is how faith is wrought. This is how faith springs up. This is what God uses to bring about regeneration. So if we're to assemble, and that is a command, and we're to assemble for the reason of coming to hear, then where else? Where else in the world can you find this? Nowhere else. Everywhere else is a dangerous place. A dangerous place for us to assume that we can can come to faith and grow. Paul also confronts the foolish generation of his time that demanded, Paul here is speaking to the church there in Corinth, and these people in Corinth were demanding wowing experiences. The Jews were insisting that there was this experience that they needed to have. And then the Greeks were insisting on the professionals. We need you to bring us the professionals. Give us the experts in intellectual prowess, is what they were saying to Paul. Listen to Paul's rebuke to those in Corinth and to us today when we so often want those very same things in our own hearts. We minimize and even criticize the preaching of the cross and say, you know what, I can go somewhere else and find these things. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God saying this. Is it going to happen if he says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise? Is it going to happen? Absolutely. Absolutely it's going to happen. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe or the professional? Where is the debater of this age? Paul's calling out in his day and in ours as well. Has not God made the foolish made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to do something specific and unique. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews, they demand signs. They want some experience, some event to see. The Greeks seek wisdom. We need the philosophers, the professionals, the scientists. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen. That's what we're called here to do this morning, to hear God's word. Ask the Lord by his spirit to convince you that these things are true, that are in his word. This is why at the end of Paul's life, he gives young Pastor Timothy a very direct command to prioritize his ministry in 1 Timothy 4.13, making sure that the hearing of God's word was going to be primary as Paul was passing off the scene and as Timothy was coming onto the scene there in Ephesus He says in 1 Timothy 4.13, 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And then later on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And all of that's the preview. All of that's saying, this is how much gravity you should give to this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word of God. And be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For time is coming. And brothers and sisters, I might add, it has come. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Is that your heart? Are you finding more support and good and help and deliverance and hope from places other than Christ and his preached word and his gathering of the assembly of God's people? It says, Paul says, that'll happen one day. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why do you come here this morning? Why did you gather here this morning? Did you come here this morning to see something? Maybe you came here just to see one another, to enjoy one another's presence. Did you come this morning that you might have your feelings stoked? Now, those things aren't bad. Our feelings, we don't want to just always be in dread. We, we do come here to see our brothers and sisters. But is that the primary reason we've gathered? Many evaluate worship services day based on what we can see and what we feel. This is not the reason given in Scripture for why we are to assemble. Instead, Scriptures say we are to assemble so that we might hear and learn. Hearing is not the only thing Scriptures tell us that we're to do as we assemble. We're to pray, we're to sing, other things. But it is the primary thing that we're called to do. Our world is moving away from that. Everything is a screen. Now, screens are not in and of themselves evil, but we made an intentional effort as elders to do our best to choose not to have screens because screens are so often right in front of us all the time. We need to be a people who are distinct. This building needs to be something different than what every other building that you go into now. And it's not a building that's driven toward what we can see, but instead a building that is designed so that we can best hear. Lights are on in this building. It is bright in here so you can read your Bible and hear what is being said, be able to discern the very words of God. This is important. What are we after then? If we're to assemble for the purpose of hearing, is that it? Is that the end? Is that, is that all we're after? Why would we, every week, week in and week out, come here to simply assemble and gather for the purpose of hearing? The next phrase helps us see that we have we're called to assemble so that we might hear. And our passage says here, the reason Paul commanded the people to gather and to hear is that they may learn to fear the Lord your God. Do you see that? Learn to fear the Lord your God. You can't get that somewhere else. You will not get that somewhere else. As a very helpful book that I read said, When People Are Big and God Is Small, that's the title of the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. 
The question is not whether, whether you will live in fear. The question is, to whom or to what are you fearing? You see, fear, in this biblical sense, as we see it in the Old Testament and New Testament, fear is not simply a trembling in the corner when, 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 when something happens. No, fear instead has an understanding of awe and reverence, trust, control, worship, and devotion. Understood this way, we can see how our fears always drive and motivate every aspect of our lives. Let me be clear. This is also from this book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. You will either fear the Lord or you will live your life fearing everything else. That's how you're going to live. You're going to either fear the Lord or you're going to live your life fearing everything else. And your life will be driven by it. Your actions will be motivated by it. Think of this. Your fears and your loves are inseparable. You fear certain things because you love those things. And you fear to lose them. And so your fears and your loves are inseparable. What do you fear? Who's receiving the awe and the reverence and the worship and the devotion of your life? Who's the one that's dictating the matters of your life, the decisions in your life, the choices that you make? Who or what do you trust to bring you peace in your life? What's the things you love and that you fear? Those are the things that you're hanging your heart on and saying, these are the things that I want to live for. If this is so central to who we are, we are called to turn from the fears and loves of this world to fix our fear and our love on the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to Him. This is simply called repentance. We repent of the ways that we're fearing all these other things, these people and these stuff and the fear of losing status or even our own lives, our health, our place, our possessions, our things. We're fearful of living in the brokenness of this world. We're fearful of going to public places. Why? Because of our loves. Repent of those things and fear the Lord alone. Love Him wholly and fully. God has told us how we're to grow and to foster and to plant a fear of God in our hearts. We're not scrambling now saying, okay, now how do I do that? No, we assemble as God's people. We hear his word preached, the gospel declared, Jesus Christ set forward. And we repent and believe in him. And in so doing, our, 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 our fears are, are fastened to our Lord. Our loves are stirred so that our love then becomes that of Christ and him alone. Think with me for a moment about this gathering with God's people. This gathering with God's people on Lord's Day. Can fear of God, faith in Christ, and love for the gathered saints happen anywhere else or in any other way? Do I really have to gather with this church or with a church in order to be a faithful follower of Christ? Aren't my personal devotions or even my family worship just as good as this? Some of you have groups of people that you are connected with online that 
you're able to talk to and interact with and they encourage you with Bible verses and you pray for them, isn't that just as good as the church? Isn't that the church? The answer biblically is no. And if you're giving what God has said the church should be, the assembling, the physical assembling of God's people together on Lord's Day, if you're giving those responsibilities elsewhere, then you are in a dangerous place. And you may not be believing what you think is the gospel because you were told that it was the gospel outside of a local body of believers that is declaring and preaching the gospel. We need to make sure that we're gathering in churches that lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what about college ministry, campus groups, and all kinds of ministries that are out there? Can God do a work in them? Absolutely. He can. He can do anything. He can work through pagan governments and and godless leaders, right? But what has he said he will work through? What has he said he will use in primary ways? It's when the saints gather on God's day to listen to God's word and to be filled by spirit. There isn't a faithful, fervent fear of God, faith in Christ, and love for the saints anymore in our land. And could it be because... Sadly, in many ways, because the church has chosen to hand these, these things off, the church is no longer valuable, and every entity out there can do this thing. And we're in the shape we're in. So turn with me now from the gathering of God's people to reflecting on the hearing of God's word. Can I hear great teaching, and I would even there say better teaching and preaching and lectures somewhere else? Been having to get up and get dressed and drive myself here, some of you for a good distance through traffic, to listen to preaching here in this room, in this building. And some of you would say, well, if I go online and I listen to these other things, then I can, I can find the place where I really need to be, be strengthened and encouraged. I can find particular pastors and particular themes that are, that are going to help me grow. Can I listen to these sermons and lectures and teachings in other places and allow my faith to grow and even, even thrive in that way? I hope you can see how distracting our world is. Most of these questions have a fundamental misunderstanding baked into them. And this is the fundamental understanding that you and I so often almost automatically assume that all of us are, in, 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 are, are correct in thinking this And it is incorrect. This church is not about you. This congregation is not about you growing. This is not, okay, I show up at church and get my personal spiritual fitness plan, and then I'll go to the gym and get my physical fitness plan, and then I go to here and get my... This is not a personal endeavor. This is not about each and every one of us individually being everything we can be individually. It's about the brothers and sisters sitting around you. And it's about all of us calling upon God's name. It's not so much about what I'm dealing with as it is, what is God working in my congregation? How are we moving forward? How can we be faithful to pray and encourage one another? And in so doing, we lift up Christ. We show that he is more valuable to us than even our plan to get better. The church isn't here to fix you, to make your life wonderful, to make your things, make everything great. Look throughout not only our scriptures, but also All the history of the church, when God's people became a member of his church, did that make their lives better or harder? Better or harder? It it almost invariably made it harder. 
And yet they said, but Christ is enough. He is sufficient. He is what I'm going for. He's the one that I'm desiring. Though the Lord can and graciously does work through so many other various ways. And there's so many resources out there. It's staggering and even encouraging to see how that is being propagated. But listen, those things are only and can only be secondary and subservient to what the Lord is doing with the people that are around you. It's hard to love one another. It's hard to rub against each other's lives. You guys have just as many problems and struggles and hardships as I do. And we're all trying to look to Jesus together. It's frustrating and irritating when you won't pay attention to me. And same way with you, right? It's more important for us to look at each other's lives and say, it's all about Christ. It's about what he's doing, how he's working. Let's be careful not to abandon the old paths. The old paths that the saints of old gave to us, and I'm not even talking about biblically, but I'm talking about in church history. The saints of old have given us old paths that are both biblical and well-worn And they've shown us that these paths are good for us. I'm reminded of a story of uh, a tsunami that came through in, in, in Indonesia, I think it was, and it wiped out a town in Indonesia. And they were clearing all this town, and they were actually going to, because of the fear, they started uh, basically going up this mountain and, and raking off all of the different shrubs and different things. And um, they were pulling all this stuff off so that they can build on that mountain because they were scared to build any lower because the tsunami basically wiped out everything that was at the bottom of the mountain. And they were clearing away all the shrubs. And as they were doing that, they, one of the guys pulled away one of the shrubs. And on the mountain, it was etched in the mountain, do not build below this point. That's foolish. Let's ignore that. Let's just go build wherever we want to. It won't hurt anything until the tsunami comes. Let's not throw away the old paths, thinking we're smarter and wiser, better equipped to do what God has said he will do in his word and in his ways. Our catechism says... What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? What are these outward ways that he does this? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are, listen, and notice that when I mention these, all of these are corporate. None of these are individual things that we do. These are the ways the Lord, the Lord, the ordinary means by which Christ communicates or gives to us the benefits of his redemption. It is especially the word. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Next question, question 94 of our catechism says this, How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of doing what? Of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in the holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Now, Moses, in our passage, knew that God's people were getting ready to head into a hostile territory. He tells them over and over again, verse 8, Be strong and courageous, do not fear, be in dread. And then he says again earlier in verse 6, he says, Be strong and courageous, do not fear, be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who will go with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Moses is giving them the solution. The solution for what? 
the solution for their fear that they have because they're going into a land that's going to, that they just apparently is just so obvious that the, these people that were in the wilderness for 40 years, you realize they were, they were slaves and pyramid makers before that. All they know how to do is make a brick. They're not warriors. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have weapons. They were in the wilderness. They have sticks and stones is what their weapons are. And they're going into a place that has been, that has been, that has been settled for, for hundreds of years. And the Lord says, don't worry about that. Go into the land. Why? Because I'll be with you. Moses gives them a solution of how they are to approach or to understand the fear of man that's in their hearts. And this is what he tells them. Fear God instead. Fear God instead. Assemble, hear the words of God, and have that by the power of God's Spirit stir us to fear Him and Him instead. One of the things we are after in our worship gatherings is not merely intellectual understanding, nor are we after moral behavior, nor are we after emotional stability. You do know, brothers and sisters, that we can fake all of those. We can pretend everything is all right. In fact, most of us are doing that this morning. What we're after this morning is for men and women, boys and girls, hear this, to love and fear God. To love and fear God. There's something far deeper that we need if we're going to go into the culture that we're going into today. There's something far more rooted that we need than just simple Bible stories that we can rattle off and say little quaint things to one another. We need something that's going to root us and ground us firmly so that we can face even death for the cause of Christ, even firing in the cause of Christ, any suffering because of Christ. How do we do that? We fear God. We fear what He says. We're concerned about what He deems as faithful and good more than we do our own comforts and our own wants. Brothers and sisters, it is a love and fear of God that we are desiring. Now, make no mistake, the world, the world wants to capture your souls. And how, how's the world going to capture your souls? They're going to do that by captivating your fears and your loves. The things you fear and the things that you love, think about it. All this week when the world was preaching to you, when the world was speaking to you, it was telling you, fear this. Love that. Fear this. Love that. I mean, think about it. Why would insurance even exist if it wasn't for fear? They come in and they say, everything's going to go away. It's all going to break. And it's going to be at one time. And you will not have money. And your children will starve. It's amazing. Think about the amount of things that we pay for because of our fear, because of our loves. Now, I want to turn to the latter part of our verse here. Now, the, the second point I want to say, the second point is basically me handing the Bibles out to the kids. So if you're worried, oh man, this is going to be a two-hour sermon. It's not. The, the, the second point is going to be me handing the Bibles out to the kids. But let me, let me, let me end this section and, and move to the last real quickly. The fear that you have, and I'm talking to moms and dads particularly, but also I want you to know that anybody in here that's a member of this church knows that our responsibility is to, is to instill our prayers, our desire, according to our, our covenant our, 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 our covenant on the back of this, is to endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to a pure and loving example, to seek the salvation of family and friends. All of us are responsible for this. Listen, your fear, 
your fear will be your child's fear. It will, it will transfer. You won't have to say anything, but they'll see it. And they will intuitively live by the things that you fear and the things that you love. The children that are around you are going to fear and love the things that you fear and love. So the work that may need to be done this morning is for you to come before the Lord and say, Oh, dear God, grant me grace that when I assemble on Lord's Day, that I will not come in with trite expectations, kind of fumbling around disorderly, but I'll come in desiring for you to speak to me, that I may hear from you, and that my heart may grow to fear and love you more and more so that I can instill that in our children, the children that are around us. Notice that this fear actually does motivate us to do something. Look with me here in verse 12. It says that you may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Once we fear the Lord our God, what is the byproduct of that? What's the fruit of that? And be careful, not just be flippant, but to be careful to do all the words of this law. J.C. Ryle, a pastor in the late 1800s, gives a warning to his people. This is in Uh, the late 1800s, okay? So get the framework here. J.C. Ryle says to his people in the late 1800s this, the world is old and we have have experience of nearly 6,000 years to help us. We live in days when there is a mighty zeal for education in every corner. We hear of new schools rising on all sides. We are told of new systems and new books for, young, for the young of every sort and of every description. And then he ends this way. And still, for all of this, the vast majority of children are manifestly not trained in the way that they should go. For when they grow up, according to men's estate, they do not see a need to walk with their God. Education, profound, all over the place. Walking with God, gone. It's man's ways. It's the world's ways. This fear of God that is created from hearing God's word when we assemble causes us to live in a particular way. Now note this, always connect this. First, the Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ, repenting of our fears, of other things, He regenerates us, and out of that love for salvation, love to please Him, desire to fear and love Him, we then are careful to do all the words that He has commanded us. We live in a way that honors the Lord. We live in a way that's not simply good or virtuous, but we live in a way that's holy and righteous. Without saving faith, we cannot do this. Spurgeon once said, he speaks of those who seek to live good lives, nice lives, moral lives, but not without, without the Holy Spirit. He says, without saving faith or a fear of God, those actions are only, these are, these are good lives, moral lives, nice things that we do for one another. He says, those things apart from the Holy Spirit are only splendid sins and beautiful abominations. This is why we are so often struggling Because we're trying to work ourselves up to do all kinds of things. That is not ultimately and finally driven by and motivated by this fear and love for God. 
You understand that this is what we're after in your heart this morning, you specifically sitting there, but also for our children. We don't want them just to be good boys and girls. We want them to fear and honor God. We want them to love the Lord. We want them to make choices based on that, that thing that's in their heart. You get your child to the place where they fear and honor the Lord, then you can send them anywhere. And they won't, they, they won't, they won't run off and do all kinds of crazy things. Because they know that fearing and honoring the Lord is profound and preeminent in their life, predominant in their life. Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then notice, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you hear that? You heard that a minute ago, didn't you? In Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, God's saying, I'm with you. Go into the land. I'll be with you. Here Jesus is saying, go and make disciples and know that when you do, I'm going to be with you. And that, and that will allow us to do anything. To go anything. Go anywhere. No fear of this world and what they can do for us. Do to us. Live knowing that our God is ultimate and primary. Point number two. Why do we assemble with our children? Why do we assemble with our children? Verse 13 says, chapter 31, verse 13, And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now, did you notice here? Notice with me. Look, look carefully. Verse 13 says, And that their children. Notice the word, or the term that's used in verse 12. Assemble the people, men, women, and, notice this is a different word, little ones. Little ones. There's a difference there. Do you see that? The little ones is a term that speaks primarily of their age. The, the, the young guys in our, in our church. The little ones. The ones that are going to come and get their Bible today. Those kind of guys. The little ones. Those are the young ones in our assembly. Verse 13, however, speaks of our children. And this is the result of our assembling with our children, and it speaks here of what the Lord is seeking to do in the future. Here it's speaking of the heritage and the legacy that we're seeking to promote. We're wanting our children to love and fear God. We're wanting our children to obey the Lord and to seek His face. We're wanting our children to grow up and be the next generation that's willing to hold up God's word and say, we stand here, there is no other. And that's why here at the end we see that as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess, this is the idea of leaving a heritage. Let me, let me explain to you. The world, the world has its way of gathering. Now think about it. How does the world gather? How does the world assemble? Think of the assemblies that the world does. Think of the assemblies that happen in our city that are worldly. You see what? Think about those things. Now, what's interesting is that we can think of things like sports events and partying and all kinds of other things that are ungodly, right? But you can also think as well that the world also has created this diabolical way of for us to all gather and assemble and at the same time lose our souls and be isolated, hasn't it? Through the internet, through, quote-unquote, social media. We can, we can gather and all along be isolated. 
torn off. Loneliness and isolation is how the world likes to gather us. It creates this isolation and this loneliness. The world's message, the world doesn't only call us to gather a symbol, but it also has given us a message. This message is self-esteem, self-satisfaction. This message is one of hopelessness. The world also tells us to fear things. In fact, the world tells us to fear everything. It's astonishing the number of medications that are out there right now to make people not fear, to calm down, because everything, everything is a danger and a threat. Just watch the news. They'll tell you what's most threatening for us today. It's a wonder. And the world's telling us to obey, isn't it? In other words, the world's doing verse 12. It's telling us to assemble, and many are doing it. The world's telling us a message of self-esteem that's hopeless. The world is telling us to fear everything and not God. And the world's telling us to obey. Let me give you an example of how the world is telling us to obey, and I think you would agree. First, the world is saying that there is many gods. Choose the one you want to choose, that you want to serve or choose the number that you want to serve. Choose any god that you desire to pursue on any given day. The world is filled with making of idols. We create and make things and then we live for them. We're carrying around in our hands the things that we live for. That's the way that the world is calling us to obey. The world has said that profaning the name of the Lord and therefore profaning one another's name is nothing. It doesn't matter anymore. Language and how we speak has nothing to do with anything other than your own self-expression. Fourthly, fourthly, does the world worship on Lord's Day? It does. It does. The world worships on Lord's Day. They gather together. They have their sacraments. They have their songs. And they worship on Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, men and women all over the world and in this town are worshiping the thing they most love. That's how the world tells us to obey. The world tells us to destroy all authorities because it thwarts our autonomy. Get rid of parents, police, anything that has authority in your life, remove it. Number six, the, Lord, the, the, the world is telling us to obey this very command, murder and kill anything that's innocent or vulnerable or worthless or outside of my sight. Remove it because it is no longer valuable because it can't contribute to my success. Number seven, the world tells us to obey all sexual perversions and even celebrate them. Number eight, the world lives in such a way as if what I own and what I possess is what makes me who I am, and so therefore I'll get and take and charge and have anything that I want because it is what I am. Number nine, the truth no longer is existent. No one can speak of truth in very concrete and clear ways. And finally, do not, do not covet. Do not want what other people want. Is the ideology of our day equality? Everybody's got to be just like me. And if that's not the case, then 
you're wrong. That's coveting. You see, the Lord calls us to obey Him. And when He calls us to obey Him, He calls us to have no other God before Him. To make no graven images. To not take His name in vain. To, honor, to remember the Lord's day and keep it holy. To honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit sexual morality. You get where I'm going, don't you? You see here, the Lord is calling us to obey his commands out of fear of him. This is what we are called to do. The world's producing kids that are devoted to worldly ideologies and hopelessness and isolation. The church, this church, is committed to call your children to faith in Christ through the ordinary means of grace and through encouraging examples of those that are around them. The world has heroes and examples that are movie stars and sports figures that promote all kinds of wickedness. This church will set before your children a high calling. We're going to ask the young boys in this church to pursue the wonderful virtues of being a deacon or an elder, able to defend their faith and live lives of integrity, standing firm against this present age. We're going to ask our young girls to grow up to be courageous, virtuous ladies that serve and love and nurture those who are around them gloriously with a firm conviction and with tender compassion. So, so different from what this world is trying to make our ladies be. The world is producing kids that are lonely, self-absorbed, and even suicidal. They, their declaration is celebrate me. And in this congregation, we're going to call our children to sacrificially serve and love others, especially those who are not like them, those who are in different, different age brackets, different scenarios in their life, calling them to have relationships with people for a long duration, and know that these relationships are what matter the most. Now, both of my children were raised in this congregation, and I am thankful that the Lord in his grace, and it was all his grace, brought them to love and fear him. My prayer is that the Lord will continue to do that for us in our day and ask that the Lord will continue to help us be faithful to look to him, to assemble, to hear his word, to be willing to fear him and love him, and then obey his commands. It's a high calling. It's not one that we should take lightly. So our desire is to raise up a generation of children who will gather with joy to hear God's word declared and see Christ set forward so that they might love and fear the Lord our God with all their heart. At Sovereign Grace, Ashley, go get the children. I'm sorry. I jumped into this without telling you. I apologize. She's, she's sitting there and she's doing this. And I can feel it because she's my wife. You know, she, that look, like she's looking at me with, in, with the message she's sending to me. And that message is, should I go get the children now? And so I, that's amazing, isn't it, how the Lord does that after you live with your wife for a while? So she's getting the children to come in here and be with us. Let me continue. Our desire is to raise up a generation of children who will gather with joy to hear God's word declared and to see Christ set forward so that they might love and fear the Lord our God with all their hearts. At Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we do this in part by establishing regular milestones in the lives of our families and before our congregation. Today, we are commemorating one of these milestones for several of our families as their children begin kindergarten or grade school, begin to read and are now able to begin following along in their Bibles in the worship service together with us on Lord's Day. Thank you for your continued prayers, congregation, and love for our children. Um, it, it is hard. It's hard for the parents some Sundays. 
more than others, others. And, and, then, and then it's hard for us to, to be in this room and to, and to encourage and, and foster this. And so I want to give a charge to the families as well as to the church, all right? And I'll tell you, families, when I would like you to, to stand here in just a moment, but not now. Parents, today I want to remind you again of the gravity and importance that is at stake in parenting. Our holy God and Father has given you this vital task to raise your children. And make no mistake, hear me, their very souls are what will be won or lost. This is my charge to you today. Shepherd the hearts of your children to love and fear God alone. We're going to do this through instruction, discipleship, and nurture. Listen, you are to, parents, you are to instruct your children to hope in the kingdom of God. The world will attack our children by promising them that the pleasures of this world are ultimate and will satisfy them and will make them happy. Train your child to know with confidence that our only good, our final pleasure, our full joy can only come by dwelling in the presence of our all-satisfying God and in his kingdom. That's our instruction. Second, you are to disciple your child, to trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Call your child to treasure Christ and to stand firm in his and stand firm in this wicked and perverse culture. The world will assault your child, and they will do so by insisting that his or her greatest problems are the needs and the wants that he or she has determined, the lack of self-esteem, the lack of success, the lack of self-exalting love, the lack of endless entertainment. Let me be clear. These are not your children's nor our greatest problems. The greatest problem our children have, the greatest problem we have, is that we are sinners standing before a holy God who is their maker and judge, and their greatest need is a Savior to deliver them from the sure and righteous wrath of God for all of those who are not in Christ. When this is your children's or your child's greatest concern, they will treasure with great joy the cross of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, you are to nurture parents. You are to nurture your child to love the saints, which is this church. God has given you this congregation. God has given us your family. We best express our love for one another by assembling and our living together. The world will cause you to value little the assembling of the saints. Sunday is the Lord's day, not our day to do with it what we please. The privilege of gathering on the Lord's day with joy will be cheapened into non-existence by the world. And the world will convince us to replace it with our conveniences, with our interests, and with our pleasures. Also, loving one another, as Scripture teaches, is not simply difficult, but impossible apart from the grace of God. In a world where committed, self-sacrificing relationships are extinct, your children will learn to love by your example. Therefore, your words and actions toward those in our congregation, at home, and in our presence should be filled with love. And when you fail, 
You should be quick to ask for forgiveness and to forgive. 